you hit a punching bag with your left hand and the club moves, it means your grip's not right. If you make a right hand and swings into a punching bag and the club moves, your grip's not right. So, and that just, so the punching bag is really heavy. So you really feel it. And then it helps you translate that into your golf swing. This is the tournament code. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today, Cameron. We know a little bit about where you are right now on the tour. Cooper's obviously played with you at the Barbasol Pro. And before we get into all that, just tell us how you got into the game of golf. By chance, really, through being Australian, I played Aussie rules football, cricket, tennis, basketball. I swam, I played soccer, I did everything else. And then I was at my grandparents' one weekend and my my grandma or my nana I called her she had five clubs and she's like I'm not going to play anymore I said oh can I take those clubs and and try golf and she goes yeah sure take them so I took them two buddies of mine had just taken up golf where I lived so th- that weekend or something like that I think I went and I played with them and I started golf there and and that's sort of where I how I started my dad played and someone I was a kid you know I'd, I'd watch him and stuff like that but when I was about 15, that's when I really, you know, I got these five clubs from my grandma and, and off I went. That's a bit of a late start as far as for many like competitive golfers, you know, a lot of them are into in like 10, et cetera. Tell us what it was like, you know, starting to play more competitive tournaments and when you figure out, hey, this is something I want to do very seriously. Yeah, it was, I mean, I was just a hack. And then um, my last year at high school, I'm like, I started getting a bit better and a bit better and I just got really interested in it. I stopped playing cricket in the summer, so I played golf. I stopped playing basketball because I was getting, you know, you hurt your fingers and stuff like that. And then I still played Aussie rules football because I loved that. And then I decided almost when I was finishing school, like, this is what I want to do for a job. And I like, like I want to be a pro. Like, I want to do this. So luckily for me, the best player in Australia as an amateur was a member of my golf club. I was in this podunk small town, 10,000 people, and it just so happens that the guy, one of the kids who was 18, he was a freak, he was the best player in Australia as an amateur, and so I had that to look up to, so I'm like, oh, that's what he does, so that's what I'm going to try and do, so you know, I'll go and practice with him as much as I could and play with him as much as I could, and I got pretty good pretty quickly, and I made sure I got marks. Because in Australia, there's no school or college golf or sport. You just go to college to, you know, to get an education and, and, and all that sort of stuff. So it was that I made it sure I couldn't quite go to college. And then I just dedicated myself to becoming a professional golfer. What did your daily practice routine look like when you were going from, like, as you self-described, a hack to someone who wants to become a professional golfer? Yeah, I finished. I finished high school and I would practice i'd hit 400 golf so i was on a golf course where you had to hit your own golf balls and pick your own golf balls up so i would i had 80 i found 80 golf balls and i had a bag with 80 balls in it and i hit that five times every morning for almost 18 months and i would take monday off because i figured you've got to take one day off somewhere and if you're professional you take monday off you're traveling so I, from tuesday to sunday i get up in the morning at six or something go to the golf course I'd put an umbrella out 80 yards, hit my sand eye to that. I'd pick it up, I'd take it to like 120 yards, hit 80 balls to that, and then so on and so on. And I'd hit 400 golf balls a day. And then I'd have some lunch, 
I'd take my sandwich with me or something and then I'd putt and chip for an hour or two and then play nine holes or 18 holes if I could. And then I'd come back and I did that for 18 months. So I went from a hack to really, really good, really, really quickly. With that practice routine, you said, you know, you hit to targets, et cetera. Were there technical things that you were working on? Was there a coach that you were working with or you were just figuring it out as you went along? Really, back then, it was like, I think someone gave me a book, Ben Hogan's Five Fundamentals of Golf or something. And I just, I tried to get the setup right. And that was pretty much it. I didn't know anything about the golf swing. There was no videos back then. No one had a camera and you could film it. You just, and every now and then you'd ask your buddies, hey, am I lined up properly? And that's about it. And off I went and I tried to hit draws. And this is back when the golf ball had spin on it. So this was a ballad of golf balls. You'd, I'd hit cuts, I'd hit draws, I'd hit highs, I'd hit lows. I didn't actually know it, but I was actually training like the nine ball flights. And that's what I did. I'd hit, you know, 80, 89 irons or 88 irons each day with a fade, a draw, you know, high, low, blah, blah, blah. So, and our fairways weren't very good. I was in a small town with, there was only two people on the staff. So I was basically hitting off dirt, which helped me with my ball striking. So I did that for, yeah, like I said, 18 months. And then I thought, I need to move to Melbourne. I lived about an hour and a half from Melbourne. I need to move to Melbourne, do a better golf course and, and get a job down there and, and become a better golfer and, and progress that way. So I left my small little town about a year later and, and, and moved down to the city. What, now, what time, type of competitions were you competing in at this time? Really basic ones, just just playing at my home club. Um, there's a few clubs around the, the area I'd play and then we'd play what we call pennant, which is there was four or five of the best juniors from each club would play against each other on a Sunday. So there was an old guy, Norm, who was a member of the club. He'd pick us up on a Sunday morning about eight. We'd drive to another club, play the five best juniors from that club. And every Sunday we did that for like about 10 weeks. You know, it was only an hour would be the furthest we'd drive, but there was enough golf clubs in the area. And, you know, your best player number one, your second best number two down to five and, and off you go. So that's all I really did for a bit. And then I went to, when I moved to Melbourne, I did something similar. You know, the best five players from the club would play other clubs. And so it was match play. I'd play against Jeff Ogilvy and Stevie Allen and uh, and these guys like that. And even Aaron Badley, I never played against Bad, but he was ju- he was a bit younger than me, so uh, we play against each other. And then I discovered these tournaments you could play at again, like it'd be thirty six holes or sometimes seventy two holes, so thirty six holes two days in a row. I discovered that, and then I started playing those events that I'd play. I couldn't really afford it at the time, um, so I'd work, and if I could afford it, I'd go and play. So. I'd worked at Cobra Golf. I made enough money there to go and play the next tournament. And then I got really lucky. I joined the club I joined. There was a rich guy, not rich guy, but he, he was well off. And he's like, I'd like to help out juniors. Whatever, you know, is there something I can do? And the manager of the club said, you know what? These tournaments are pretty expensive to enter. If you could donate some money and we can help the kids pay for the tournaments. And I got lucky that the guy put some money in a fund and, and that sort of helped me play more and more tournaments so and then I played these they're called Ivo Wittens so every weekend there'd be an Ivo Witten somewhere in the state of Victoria and you'd, you'd drive and play and, and come back and go to work that is cool you know when you're playing competitive golf and especially professional golf you trying to make a living to be able to keep doing it over a long period of time you have to see most people want to see hey there's some sort of sustained success like hey there's some there's something here that tells me I 
can do this. What were some of those moments early on where you're like, hey, I, I think I can do this. Like I might be able to get a living out of this. Well, the same thing. I moved to Melbourne with my friend who was the best amateur in the, in the country. We, we rented a house together. It was a unit. I don't know how we didn't kill each other with the food we ate. Um, we nearly killed each other once. I think we reheated something we shouldn't have, and we were so sick for a day or two. But I moved down there with him, and we joined the same club. So I got to play with him all the time, and I I started beating him. And also because we played in the club championships back home, and he beat me. I think he beat me over thirty six holes, eleven and ten. Like he was back then. I was like seventeen, eighteen. He was same as he. He was. I think nine or 10 under and I was like even par and got beat. So I'd move with him. But the thing that I think that helped me, I never play with anyone. I'm like, I can't hit it like he does. You know, some guys I play with now, they're like, oh man, I was, I thought I was good. Then I joined college and I play this guy. I'm like, well, that's a different level. I'd never experienced that. So I think that's what kept me going. When it came to playing tournaments, you know, making money, et cetera, where did you first start seeing making a little bit of money or at least being able to like say, hey, I can keep myself afloat for a while with this. Well, I, I didn't turn pro till I was 25 because I just didn't couldn't afford it. Uh, my parents were school teachers. So they made a modest, they make more money than they do in America, which is pretty sad. That's another story. So they couldn't afford to fund it. So I had to work. I worked behind a bar at night to, to save money up. In Australia, there's not a big deal of, there's not a thing of like, hey, we've got a good golfer here. All the rich guys get together and they might sponsor you and help you out for a year or two. That's just not the done thing in Australia. So I had to save as much money as I could to afford to go to Q school somewhere. So I, I, I saved money till I was 25 and turned pro then. And I actually, I was pro for a year or two maybe and I was sort of making ends meet and I was down to $400 in my bank account and the Australian PGA was on and I had to fly up and qualify on the Monday. I went up, I qualified. And um, my coach at the time, he tried to qualify. He was a player as well. And he's like, oh, look, I know you've got no money. I'll caddy for you for the week and we'll see how we go. And you pay me at the end of the week. Well, I, I came sixth, I think, and made $17,000. And I was going to quit golf because I was like, I can't afford, you know, I've got $400 in the bank. I'm, you know, I've got a wife and all that sort of stuff. I can't afford to do this. I was going to quit. And I made $17,000, which felt like $15 million at the time. I'm like, all right, I'm away here. You know, I paid him and I still had some money left over. I'm like, I'm going to go to America. I'm going to come over here and try and Monday qualify. That seems like a good idea. So I came over here with my 15 grand, I think I might have had, and, and tried to Monday qualify for Cornberry events or buy.com or web.com, whatever it was at the time. A buddy and I, we bought a car for like $6,000 and drove that around America for a year. And I tried to Monday qualify and, and, that didn't go very good either, unfortunately. So I had to go home and I play this, this summer in Australia and, and earn some more money. And then earn enough, I try, I decided I'm going to earn enough money to go to Q school the next year. So that's what I did. What's the mental battle like when you're playing in those qualifiers and, you know, you know that if you get in and you cash, you're making way more money than you have in your entire bank account. Is that harder or does it kind of free you up knowing that you know, you have nothing to lose. Yeah, the, the money's the money thing's a really hard thing when you first turn pro. Like I turned pro with nothing, basically. But then, like a guy in Australia, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of a guy called Peter Senior. He had a he invested in a business over there, and it, 
make crazy amounts of money, but he said to me, Cameron, you've got to play golf like you're a, you've got millions in the bank. And when you've got $400 in the bank, it's hard to play golf aggressively or whatever, because that's the mindset you've got to have. And now I've been a bit more successful and money's not an issue. Or you can really see the difference. You just, you go for more shots or you, or you prepared to try something because there's no consequences. Whereas, you know, some of these guys now I see turn pro with, they're getting two, $3 million contracts and even more. I'm like, I couldn't imagine the freedom that must free you up to like, all right, I know I, you know, I can get, I can hire the best caddy. I can hire the best, you know, sports, like physiotherapists or something like that. I just can't imagine what it must be like to sign deals like that and then go from there. But yeah, the pressure, the pressure is just something you just got to deal with. You know, if you're going to be a professional athlete, pressure is something you just got to deal with. In what ways have you dealt with that pressure over your career? Well, I do remember I was in a playoff, get down to the seat, I go to hit off and I'm just shaking like crazy. And I'm like, holy crap, like, what the hell is this? And I'd, I'd worked a little bit with a psychologist in Australia called Noel Blundell. He was, I was in the Institute of Sport in Australia and he helped out a bit here and there. And then I felt this thing, I can't control my nerves. I'm like, what the hell is this? So I went and I... I went and saw him and he gave me all these breathing techniques to use and I, I'm like, that worked pretty good. What else can we do? And I worked really, really hard with him on routines and how you play and how you focus and all that sort of stuff and his breathing techniques really helped me and um, so I don't really suffer that badly from nerves anymore. You know, playing at a high level, as you said, especially not having a lot of money in the bank account can help create some nerves and... I imagine, especially trying to get status somewhere, you know, going through that Monday Q route, et cetera, was a little tough. And then saving up money for Q school to try to get some status in the U.S. Tell us about getting status in the U.S. and what that journey looks like. Yeah, it's it's a big deal. Yeah, I had to go to Q school. So you've got to go through three stages. I got through first stage and that was in Dallas, just out of Dallas. And then second stage I did in Dallas at I. I had to work out. Someone said I should go to McKinney, Texas. It's a pretty hard golf course and you don't have to go crazy low. If you hit it good and don't have a good putting week, you should still get through. Any other weather turned there, it was like, you know, 75, 75, and it turned to like 50. It was horrible on the last day. And I was right around the number and I needed to shoot a good score to get through, just to get status. Like I said, to get status on the, at worst, on the Colbury Tour. And back then, you, you went there and you tried to get your PJ Tour card. It was still like that. And I remember shooting 68, which was the best score of the day by heaps. It was windy, it was cold, it was miserable. Shot 68, went from like 25th to like 4th or something. And I was, all right, I've got status now. I'm officially going to have some sort of status on the, P- on the PGA Tour, which is huge. And it was just a massive relief. Massive relief. As far as you got you got that status and then actually starting to, you know, play in tour events, et cetera. Tell us about that transition going from, playing in some of those Monday qualifiers and then also some of the smaller Australian events to playing on the PGA Tour? Well, I got status, played a season on the, I didn't get my PGA Tour card, played a season on the Corbury Tour. Um, We had a baby, my wife got sick, I had to stay home with her, so I lost, I had to just take time off and then I had to come back and go through it all again. And then I got my Corbury card and I'm like, let's let, so my wife, we had two kids at the time, let's come over to America and 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 see how this goes and uh, I that was in 2009 I, I got my card basically sewn up sort of halfway through the year 
And then it was onto the PGA Tour the next year. And in 2009, I actually played with Tiger Woods in Australia. He came out and played the Masters. I played them the last day. 25,000 people. It was fantastic. I'm like, wow, this is going to be awesome playing the PGA Tour. Like, this is going to happen every week. Like, this is going to be unbelievable. And I played the first event in Hawaii, last group. I had two uncles and uh, my wife watching. <laughs> so a little bit a little bit of a letdown my first few times. And then I went to Palm Springs. Same thing, last group. I think a buddy came and watched. That was it. So you got the two walking scorers and my buddy, and that was it. I'm like, oh, it's a bit deflated. Like the atmosphere is not as good as I thought it would be. And then we went from Palm Springs to San Diego where Tiger played. And all of a sudden, it's like you get security every 10 steps you take. You got your badge, sir. You got your badge. And there's people everywhere. I'm like, all right, now this is what I expected it to be like. Now we're on the PGA Tour. Like, and San Diego, I played in San Diego. It was awesome. Very cool. So, you know, you said you had spent some time on the tour, spent, the, spent some time on the Corn Ferry going back and forth. Tell us about like how hard it is to win at that level and how hard it is to like maintain status at that level on both the PGA Tour and the Corn Ferry? First year or so I was on the Corn Ferry Tour, some of the cuts are four and five under, which is, you know, I'm playing in Australia, we're playing on hard golf courses. This is back in the area where three or four over would make the cut. You know, the golf course is just so hard. Uh, this is before the Pro-V came in, so the ball didn't go 350 yards. So it was really hard. Then you come to the Corn Ferry Tour, some of the events are cut to three, four under. And that was a real, that was really hard to get used to. And then... Oh, I forgot what was the question again, sorry. I lost my track of No, you're good, you're good. Just how hard it was to, A, win on the PGA Tour. Oh, that's uh, right, yeah. And win on the Corn Ferry and also maintaining status there because there's only, you know, a couple hundred guys in the world that can have status on those tours. Yeah, I mean, to win, to win on the PGA Tour, like I've been out here 12 years or something now, I've never won. My very first year I was in a playoff and... Jonathan Bird had a hole in one, so he won. I'm like, that's oh, all right, you know, I'll get back here easily. And like, it's so damn hard. It's so damn competitive. And I, I won once on the Corn Ferry Tour. Uh, so I won in Springfield when I was sort of around the mark to get my card. And then I won and that just guaranteed it. So that was, I remember I was on the 72nd hole in the rough you know, over water and I was tied with like four guys. I need a birdie to, to win. And my caddy's like, oh, let's just lay it up over there. And we'll, like, at worst, we'll be in a playoff. And I turned to him and said, this, this is going to make my, you know, I, I'm going to try and make a difference. I'm going to try and change my life here. I want to get back on the PGA Tour. I'm going for it. And he's like, all right. So he hands me the hybrid and he sort of turned his back and I knocked it on the green to about 30 feet and put it up to a couple of inches and, and I won. And I sort of, so you've sort of, you don't get a lot of chances and you've got to make, you've got to take your chances basically. You know, the M, the, is it Eminem, the song, you know, you only get one chance. That's sort of thing resonates with you. Like you only get one chance. Can you take it? And I had my chance and I'm like, screw this. I'm going for it. Like I hit in the water, I'll drop it. And I might be able to make five and get in a playoff. But my chance, I've got what on the last group, one chance. I'm going to take it. That got me back on the PGA tour in 2014. I've been there ever since. So, but then to win on the PGA tour, like, just the quality of golf's incredible, you know. Rory, Rory, Tiger, Phil, all those guys. Like, Phil have no idea how good those guys are. It's really, really hard to win a golf tournament. Plus, you need a bit of luck and all that sort of stuff too. So, it's just like you saw this weekend. I think Russell Henley hit on the green, half a club short, rolls back into a hole, lose a goal. Like, just stuff like that. Like that ball rolls two inches to the left, 
he chips it up, makes par, par the last few, and Lucas Lucas Glover doesn't make those ten footers. He's a winner. Like it's just, it's really really hard to win. Back when we were playing a few weeks ago, you mentioned to me that there was a year on the PJ Tour where you led the entire tour in strokes gain approach. What would you attribute your success to in this area of the game? Really, really good coaching. I've been so lucky. I met a guy called Steve Band back when I was about 19 or 20. He, he started up this Institute of Sport in Australia, in Victoria, sorry, just in the, my state. And it was just the six best guys, six best girls could go there. And we would, so I got introduced to him and he taught me how to practice and how to swing a golf club, basically. He was a great swinger himself and could teach it really well. And I've been with him now, t- I've known him 30 years. He's been my coach for probably 15 to 20 of, the, of those years because he was with Robert Allaby and Stuart Appy as well. So he had a time where he helped me out and then came over to America with those guys and I didn't see him for 10 or 15 years maybe. And then when I came back, came over here and got on tour, we um, got back together. So just really lucky that I've had really good coaching and, and I think that's what's helped me hit the golf ball. And uh, the way I practice, I practice very, very well, I think. Like a lot of people go to the range and don't simulate how you play on the golf course, whereas I've learned to do that really, really well on the on the range. So I might, a lot of guys might spend hours and hours on the, on the range, but they're not actually practicing anything. I don't even, they're just practicing golf swing and golf's not about just golf swing. So that's what I think my advantage is. In what ways do you kind of practice to prepare for an actual round of golf? Well, well, on the golf course, you've got water, trees, out of bounds, bunkers and stuff like that other range there's none of that so i make i hit i have this drill where i've got 16 balls and i hit four balls where i hit it something and and there's no out of bounds and then i'll hit it something and out of bounds is right and then out of bounds is left and then out of bounds is left and right and that simulates you know practicing on the golf course so and then when i get the first tee i'm like all right is that a bounds right okay i've practiced that i've hit four shots i'm going to hit my draw or my fade or my low or my high like I'll, I'll work out which shot works best that day. So that's that's sort of what I practice. And I'll, not many people do that. Do you typically work the ball towards the uh, out-of-bounds or away from it? Or does it matter? Away. Away, away from it? Yeah. And uh, like one of the principles I came up with with this sports psychologist was if I'm hitting a straight shot or say I'm trying to fade a shot or draw a shot, then it goes out-of-bounds or into a hazard. Because so, your brain will just automatically hit away from that. Your subconscious will hit away from it. So. You never aim, unless it's crazy wind or something, I never actually aim for a bunker or a water hazard or something because your brain will just automatically make you hit away from it. So, When it comes to working with your coach, what does that relationship look like as far as what you guys focus on and have worked on over the past 15 plus years? Well, he used to actually be with me in person. He, then his wife got sick, so he had a, she got breast cancer. So he, he hasn't been here for four years now, I think. But he was with me, you know, 15 weeks a year physically. Uh, he'd come over for blocks of seven or eight weeks at a time because from Australia and just the course might set up a certain way so we'd work on certain shots for that course. You know, make sure my swing was, was in all in, in all parts of my game were all good. So I had his eyes there all the time, which was great. He also worked with KJ Choi and Stuart Appleby. So, you know, he couldn't spend all the time with me, but... Having him there, if something went wrong or something didn't feel right, you can always ask him questions and stuff like that. Because it's just crazy every day. You wake up, you might sleep funny, your body feels different. It's so hard to 
play good all the time and everything feeling good. So, but he had just some principles that we worked on and, and, and so it was something, not just a feel, it was like something physically you could see. So that made it a lot easier too. Cause a lot of people were like, oh, I just feel like I do this, but well, your feels change all the time. So it's, it, it makes golf hard. Especially as you get better at implementing some change or something like that, the same feel's not going to feel as, feel as dramatic or feel like what it was. When it comes to feels on the golf course, tell us about the kind of A, if you have swing thoughts or B, and B, you know, warming up before round and getting ready for tournament, what kind of, whether you're looking at any feels or thoughts and exactly what your process looks like. Yeah, for me, I really just focus on impact. I just have a mental picture of where I want to be at impact, and that's all I try and do. What I, what all the other stuff I do, I, I have no idea where the club is and that sort of stuff. But I'm just trying to imagine. I do a lot of impact bag stuff. Like I've got an impact bag, or I've got a punching bag at home that doesn't move. If you hit an impact bag in the house, it'll go flying. But a lot of my stuff's just pure impact. That's all that really matters. So I do a lot of impact drills, basically. And, and, and basically from like a, you know, your 430, just, just part be, be beyond your hips sort of thing through the ball. If you can get in those positions, that's really all I work on. I don't, you know, it doesn't matter if you're outside, inside, but if you're just a couple of feet before the ball, you haven't got enough time to, to change it. So that's really all I work on is impact and just before impact. What are some of those positions that you'd like to see when you're at impact? I think at impact is really just club face square, left shoulder, left hand. And, and the club face all in line, basically at impact. And that's the main thing I look for. And your hips are just slightly open. So that's really, I mean, I do a lot of like just left-handed swings into a bag and then right-handed swings. And that helps you with your grip and stuff as well. So if you hit a punching bag with your left hand and the club moves, it means your grip's not right. If you make a right-handed swings into a punching bag and the club moves, your grip's not right. So, and that just... So the punching bag is really heavy, so you really feel it, and then it helps you translate that into your golf swing. Is that just because, like, if the club moves, it means it's not square? Correct. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Yeah, so a lot of people, if you're really open, you're, the club will, like, slip in your hand and stuff like that. Or your grip's not right. Your grip's too weak or too strong, the club will move, and you'll be able to fire that out just by hitting into a, either a punching bag or an impact bag. Or in your hotel room, your bed. <laughs> what does preparation for a tournament look like for you and your team? Well, now I on a Monday, I, I've got a stats guy. He's in England. He works with a lot of the top players. And he'll send me an email on what typically wins, what's typically a top 10 and where the cut is. And he'll give me a breakdown on, on how many shots I'll have from certain distances. And the key stats that the winners have all had and I'll work on those things for the week. So some week, a lot of them, a lot, pretty much every week, the best putter wins. So there's certain stats that some weeks, like making putts inside five feet's huge. So I'll do a lot of five foot and in putting. Others, it's just pure footage hold. So do a lot of 10 to 15 foot and 20 foot putting that week. So you got to work, you, basically who holds the most putts from there wins. So I've got some drills I do there. So. You know, basically he'll send me, or some weeks, hey, Cam, this is a massive wedge. You've got a lot of clubs from 90 yards to 150. So I'll just work on those clubs and, and all that sort of stuff. So it varies from week to week. And then other weeks, it's a, well, normally it's the longest guy. So unfortunately now I'm 49, I just can't hit it as far. 
So some weeks he just says to me, like, if you finish top 30 here, that's an awesome week because that's a massive distance bias. Just hit it as far as you can. And, and that's, and those weeks aren't great for me. But then some weeks it's like last week was a massive emphasis on hitting the ball in the fairway um, because the rough was so penal. So, you know, I, I don't know. I haven't seen what, what Lucas did last week, but from what I saw on the TV, he didn't miss many fairways. So last week was actually a good week for me because it was all about, hitting fairways, and then then it, then it became a putting competition. So would you say with those weeks where it's more about making the short putts inside five feet, are those the easier setups and then the harder setups would be the ones where it's more about footage hold? Or I just kind of wanted to understand that a little bit more. I think a lot of the times the short stuff, it's like on the Poa Greens. A lot of people miss, like you play San Diego, Pebble Beach and that, and it's a lot of short putts missed. And it's pretty much it because of the power and there's so many people playing, it's the greens get chopped up. So those weeks, it seems to be the guy that can make the, all these putts inside five foot normally does pretty good. So then the, the footage hold is normally when it's soft and it's just a, you know, it doesn't really matter how you hit it because the greens are soft and the ball's not going to go fast. So then, and the, all the greens, are, if the greens are pure, sometimes it's, it'll be a, all right, whoever holds the most putts this week. He's going to win. Since you've been playing on tour for so long, going back to the same courses for the most part, have you noticed a, um, have you had any surprises working with the stats guy saying like, oh, I thought this about this course, but now since he sends me this information, I think differently? There's definitely a few holes. I remember when I, the first week I worked with him was Pebble Beach and the second hole at Pebble Beach, short par five, no one could get the ball up. Like he sent me all these stats. You can't miss the green in the left bunker. And I'm like, okay, so I threw a few balls in the left bunker. I'm like, holy crap, this is a downslope. The bunker's on a downslope. It's a really badly designed bunker to a downslope, and you just can't. The ball won't st- You can barely get the ball in the green. I'm like, huh. And then I, I look, and, and that the week I hit it either in the right bunker or just short of the green and chipped up all week. I didn't even try and get it to the pin. I just made sure I didn't hit it left. And I play, I think I eagled it one day and birded every other day. So I'm like, I gained some shots on the field that week. So I definitely remember that hole. Or the ninth hole at Pebble was like a really hard hole. Just hit in the middle of the green or something and kick the ball under the hole sort of thing. And I did. I played the hole one under for the week. So just little stuff like that was quite surprising. I'm like, man, he's right. Like you can't get the ball up and down. And then I, I actually had a look that week. I think maybe one or two guys got up and down from that left bunker on the second hole at Pebble and two of them chipped it in. Like they didn't actually hit it close or anything. They just... They chip the next shot in, sort of thing. So, you know, he, there's a few holes here and there that are, it really does make a difference. What does it look like preparing for the course, going out there for practice rounds and warming up wise? Well, that's the other thing he'll do. He'll he'll send me a list of short game holes. Like a lot of guys miss this green, so practice your chipping here. This hole's a wedge. You're not going to miss the green. Don't even bother chipping. Like I play practice rounds with some guys and they'll chip from everywhere on some holes i'm like what are you doing chipping from there like it's a three wood wedge like if you hit it there like there's something wrong with your game like why are you wasting your time practicing that shot you're just not going to have it so he'll send me normally some weeks it's nine greens like we might play a course where it's really hard to hit the green you got you got to practice your chipping here and other and the bunkers and all that sort of stuff and other other courses it might be five holes where I practice my chipping where it, they might be big greens or something. You're not going to miss them. So don't worry about, you know, 
chipping and stuff like that. So I get a thing out and I get a stack of the six easiest, six hardest, and six medium holes. So and it tends to be the six hardest holes are the ones where you do your chipping. Is there any sort of preparation that you work on with your caddy? Do you give him like these stats and have him keep these in mind? What does that relationship look like? Yeah, absolutely. He, my caddy gets the same email I do. So he'll get it Monday and we'll get to the course and say, all right, we're working on this. We might, it might be a week where we've got a lot of shots from 90 to 150 yards. We'll get our track man out and just do a lot of random numbers, you know, and that kind of stuff. And, and like I, I, I um, did a thing with Scott Fawcett with the decade stuff and we'll map the course out, you know, what do you reckon about this? So that's a three, two or one, you know, whether you can or can't get it up and down and stuff like that. So we do that as well. Uh, some weeks the greens are soft, so you, you don't worry about it so much. But when it gets further, that, that stuff definitely helps. That was one thing we talked with Marty Jertsen over at Ping about shot shaping pins and how firm greens are. And one of the things he said that was interesting was that generally speaking from a stats perspective, when the greens are firmer, it starts to become benefit. It starts to become beneficial to work the ball in towards the pin. So if you had a right pin hitting a cut in would be better than hitting a draw in, et cetera. And they had stats to back it up and 3d dynamic modeling to prove it when it comes to hitting shots into approach shots into greens is, you know you'd mentioned you work the ball away from trouble normally do you off do you work the ball towards the pin or does it do you play a stock shot into greens generally what does that look like yeah well now the ball doesn't spin so i really struggle to move the ball and especially like i basically play a draw but you know sometimes the pins only five or six over a bunker or something and you can't stop it so you need it but you to hit a draw now or a big draw just doesn't stop like the ball won't stop on the green because there's no spin on it. So it's really hard. And even to hit a cut, like I struggle to move the ball left to right. But now with the ball not spinning much, I can barely move it left to right. So I struggle on right pins. So I sort of have to go straight at them. And if I hit it straight, great. But my tendency is to draw it all just draw the middle of green. So, you know, the, the great players or you know, most of the great players used to Draw to the left pin, fade to the right pin, but that doesn't happen anymore. I don't. Think, I haven't played anyone who does that anymore since I played with Bubba Watson. Like he was the last guy that actually moved the ball left to right or right to left. Now everyone just plays it one shot, stop shot, and and doesn't matter where the pin is. I still play it. Yeah, I think I think Marty said JT might have been the only one or one of the major ones that was doing it. And what he had showed, Justin Thomas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nah, he. That is true. I've like. I played with him a few years ago when he was flushing it, and it was impressive. Like, he literally, pins on the right, he hit a fade, pins on the left. He moved his drive around everywhere. He was rare. He was one of the last guys I've played with. I'm like, man, that guy can actually hit shots. That was one of the stats that Marty dropped on us was that Justin Thomas, you know, hit, hits the same amount of greens and regulation as most other players. And even, I think he hits about the average amount but as far as strokes gained approach, when he's pl- when he's playing good, his strokes gained approach is top five, and so that was one of the reasons he said that 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 was because of those firm greens. You can get the ball on the green, moving towards the direction of the pin, and he gets marginally closer. You're picking up and it strokes there helps him because he's playing all those big events where it's you know really tough conditions, firm 
firm fast greens with a lot of slope. Yeah, I, I can't remember the last time I played a firm golf course. So like like we played together at the Pro-Am at the Barbasol. Like I played champions yesterday. I mean, you, it's as soft as it gets. And that's, I'm sure that's how most normal tour events are. Yeah, it really doesn't matter how you flight the ball. There's no, doesn't mean if you hit a high, low, flush it. No, the greens are so soft, it pretty much just stops. And then you get the extreme, like I watched the memorial on TV where the greens are all like concrete, but they're so firm that like guys are in the middle of fairway flushing it with a nine iron. It's bouncing 20, 30 feet. Like there's literally, you got no chance. Yeah, yeah. With a, when you used to play the ballada ball, every golf course was rock hard and firm and you had to pure it from the middle of fairway to hold the green, which was that gave everyone an advantage, and now the, that, that advantage is gone. When it comes to playing in some of the bigger events, what have you, what sort of pressure have you felt? You mentioned you felt pressure early on. You've worked with play, worked with a coach to reduce that. Do you feel pressure playing in quote unquote bigger events? And how has that manifested itself? Yeah, def- definitely. I think I think that's normally the first. For some reason, it's always on the first hole or two that you're a bit anxious, and then you seem to get into the round and away you go. One one thing that really helped is I used to, I just you know there's a leaderboard everywhere. I just interested to see how they're going, and my stats guy, he he he's, he was into me a few years ago. Like, don't look at the leaderboard. Let let your caddy look at it, and he'll tell you what to do. Don't even, and that that's a real help. Not even looking at leaderboards and just play golf and you. Caddy will tell you if you need to go for shots or not. He can watch it and keep track of it, but don't even look at it. Just play golf, and then at the end of the day, come up with the score you have, and you'll be. That really helps with the nerves, I think. As far as finishing up a tournament goes and recovery, what sort of working out do you do? Recovery work do you do, et cetera, to try to keep in shape because you got a long season to get through? Yeah, I don't. I used to work out a lot. Uh, my physio here. In, in Raleigh, he's also the physio on tour, so it's been great. And he's he was set a program. But I got COVID back in 2020, I think, when it first came. I was in Mexico. Tom Hoagie gave it to me, I think. And I haven't been on a workout. I've got that lull holders or whatever it is. I haven't been on a workout since. And it's just manifested. I've just got weaker and weaker and weaker. So not being on a workout is really, really hard because you just get weaker and weaker. And, you know, we're hitting golf balls and, and traveling and stuff like that. So... It stuck really, but now that we've got this Normatec stuff where you can put stuff on your legs and compression pants, and now they've got compression hips and for shoulders. So I do, I do all that sort of recovery type stuff. I used to do ice baths and stuff like that, or hot and cold. I do a lot of hot and cold showers in the middle of summer, but definitely the the compression pants and the stuff they've got on tour now um, are really really helpful. So yeah, there's definitely. I mean, guys now, the top guys are traveling with guys or, or like work on their bodies every single day. It makes a huge difference. I know one of your good friends, Greg Chalmers, has gotten really into speed training and he works out a lot. He's getting ready for the Champions Tour. Are you kind of in the same boat as far as speed training goes, getting ready for the Champions Tour? But how, how are you approaching those things? Yeah, same thing. I can't do it. I Since I got that COVID, I just I haven't got the energy. So I... I became friends with um, Kyle Berkshire, who's a world long drive guy. Uh, the guy that trains him lives an hour from where I am. And I became friends with him and he helped me for a couple of years with my driver and he helped me increase my speed. I almost got up to 180 miles an hour ball speed and it was really, really beneficial. 
And then since when I got COVID, I went down to like 160 miles an hour. So I had to change my setup and my driver and everything. And I'm now, I'm feeling a little bit better. I can, but I can't do any speed training. It just it wears me out. If I if I do speed training, I have to have I have to lie down for a couple of hours and go to sleep. So uh, it really sucks because I really enjoy it, but it's it's really hard work. But it definitely helps, especially getting out of rough and stuff like that. Like, but I can't get out of the rough anymore when we play San Diego. I used to be able to hit six and seven irons out of there from 180 yards. Now I just got to hack them out. So that's where I think the speed training really helps. But it's been amazing watching Greg. I used to hit it 15, 20 yards past him comfortably. And now he's 10, 15 yards past me, probably on average. It's been pretty impressive to watch. How have you changed your strategy or have you now that you're competing on the PGA Tour at 160 miles an hour ball speed? It's really hard. I've got a seven wood. You have to get a seven wood when you can't hit it very far. So from 230 yards, I can hit a seven wood and it comes in nice and soft. And you've got to change your golf ball. I've got to go to a bit more spinnier ball so I can hold the greens and stuff like that. But it's really hard now. Like these guys hit it so far now. And everyone's doing some kind of speed training because the stats all say hit it as far as you can. Doesn't matter if you're in the rough or in the fairway. It doesn't matter. And that's what Bryson and like I remember I was talking to Jason Day a few years ago and he's like, when Bryson really got into it, he's like, I try to do what Bryson did, but it it really hurts like your body it hurts to keep hitting it that hard and i think bryson's having those issues too like i think he's slimmed down a bit now he's not as big as he was but it's the stats just say hit it as far as you can doesn't matter if you're in the fairway the rough and and, and that's where how, how the game's going you talked about your range session and what you do to try to simulate play on the range tell us about what short game practice looks like in putting practice my stats guy's got some of the best putting drills to do. I do all these drills to simulate pr- pressure, basically. And like quite often, send me a stat, all right, you've got a whole 85 feet of, of putts this week. So I'll do a drill from 5, 10, 15, 20 feet and all different angles, and I'll hit 18 putts, and it has to add up to 85 feet. So I've got a few drills like that. I've got a, sh- I've got a really good speed drill I do. It's like a leapfrog drill. So I'll do that for speed and then short game stuff. It's really, you know, you just hit it. Oh, there's a few games you can play, but I, I don't have a lot of games or things to measure. One, one of my caddies used to have a good game. He'd give me six hard, six easy, six medium chips, and we'd go around and he'd add them up. He, and he'd say, all right, we didn't do it good enough. Go back and do them again sort of thing. So I think he was counting up the feet. I got close to the hole sort of thing, but it's hard to find that a green that simulates out in the course, like a practice green. Most of them are softer or they're just not the same. So, But I've got a few little base, like I've got a, a bunker tip Greg Chalmers gave me. So well, I, was, I was asking about bunker plays. Like, what's so hard about aim your feet, two yards left, your club face one yard, two yards right, and swing on your feet line or come out straight. And I'm like, that's pretty simple. So every day I hit six bunker shots like that. I just draw a couple of lines in the sand and get my ball position right. I aim my body three or four yards left, club face three or four yards right, and I swing on my feet like I come down straight. And I'm like, well, that's pretty simple. So that's all I do for bunkers. And then just chipping, you know, you just chip around the green and stuff like that. Very cool. Well, getting close to our final questions, we just got a few more for you. When it comes to playing on tour, it's a lot of work, a lot of travel. Tell us about what it's like managing 
having a family and a life outside of golf while still trying to play and travel. Yeah, I used to. I mean, I used to practice way more than I do now. I was. I used to think if I if I took a, two, a day or two off, I'll lose it. I worked out that doesn't happen. So I've got a young family with my wife over here. She's from Australia too. So when I get home, it's like all right. I, it's it's family first, not me first. Whereas that you know, it used to be me first. I work around my practice and and all that sort of stuff. But now it's like, all right, I work my practice around my family. If that makes sense, just you know, I'm 49 now, and at some stage you got to you got to you know, family comes first. Basically, if that makes sense. Uh, we, we've sort of made enough money now where it does. It's not the be all and end all. I suppose that's probably why. That's why it's family first more than. All right, work comes first, and then and then we'll fit it around that sort of thing. So I got three boys back here, so that might, but now they're getting into golf, and I'll come home after five weeks on the road, and the first thing they want to do is go to the golf course. And it's like, oh my God, it's the last thing I want to do. But my twelve-year-old loves it, so I take him out and we play, and, and it's hilarious. So I really enjoy. I actually enjoy playing golf with my kids more than I do on the PGA Tour now. That's because they just they collect every card, they write down every score. Like my 12 year old, if he tops it, it's like, want another one? No, nah, I've got to play it from there, dad. And he writes down exactly what he, there's no cheating. There's no mulligans. There's no, it's quite bizarre. And then my 17 year old, who's got mad into golf as well, he just turned 17 and he's looking to go to college and all that sort of stuff. So it's been interesting with him. Do I just let him go and, and do his own thing or do I try and help him? So it's a fine line between being a parent and let him have fun or, and like, I oh, mate, you're not doing that properly. So. Is it a hard challenge to help your kids become better at golf because you've become so good? So I'm sure it's kind of like, well, why don't you just do it like I do it or just do it like this? Is it hard to teach them or is that something that comes easy for you? No, definitely hard because, but I've had such good coaching. I've sort of like, um, and my coaches have been here. When my son was starting to play, like my coach would stay at home and we'd go out and play. So he's had... His golf swing, he swings it pretty much perfectly on plane already, and he's been doing that for a year just because he's co- yeah, had such good coaching. So, but it is—it's a fine line between letting them just have fun because I just know how big a grind it is, and I just don't want him to like hate. Like I got lucky because I took up golf at fifteen, and it was fun for me, and I was happy to go and practice all day. Whereas I had all my friends that grew up, they played golf when they were nine, ten. By the time they got to fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, they're like, oh. I just want to go and have fun and do something. It become a grind for him, but for me, I was lucky. So I'm trying to, and I know when he goes to college, it's going to be full on. And then if he wants to turn pro, that's sort of what he wants to do. It's just such a grind and such hard work. I just, it's a fine line between, just let him have fun now. Who cares what you shoot now? It really doesn't matter until you actually turn pro. Where does he want to play at? He, he's already committed to UNC Greensboro. He did it all himself. I know nothing about college golf. Maybe I didn't do it. And he's like, Dad, can we go to Greensboro tomorrow? I'm like, for what? He goes, oh, I'm meeting with a coach. I'm like, coach of what? And he's like, oh, I've been talking. I sent him a video on my swing and I told him who I was and this and that. That's a solid program. Like, yeah, so UNC Greensboro. So I went there and checked it out. The facilities they've got are incredible. And I'm like, I never heard of this school, let alone their golf thing. Oh. And like, they've got an indoor facility at the Grandover Resort with putt view and a couple of nets with like the track man and everything so if the weather's bad you've got that and then they've got a at the end of the range they've got their own thing with their own ball that are indoor and they could hit out of a thing and their own range and they got access to six golf courses i'm like 
holy crap, like, this is what these guys have got. What are these other the big schools got? I said, you, this is where you, if you want to be a golfer, you've got everything you need here. So, and he's an hour and a half from home. And if he wants to pop home or something like that. So he, he's already committed there. So he's going to go there, not this year, but the year after, because he's still at, at high school. That is awesome. Well, we're hoping the best for him. And the last question we ask every guest actually is about junior golfers and for you, if you could go back to yourself as a junior golfer and just tell yourself one thing, what would that one thing be? Work on your routine. The best the best players have the best routines. They don't get out of routine. And just get a stop shot. Have a stop shot because you basically just hit one shot 90% of the time. So And trust that shot. Like, you know, Dustin Johnson, you watch him. He gets to the last hole and he hits that fade and it comes back for him. Cam Smith hits his draw and stuff like that. It's just so important that when you're nervous as hell, basically, and you, there's people everywhere, you've got to trust a shot that the ball's going to come back. So develop a stock shot and, and go with that. Well, perfect. We appreciate you taking the time to join us. Where can people find you on social media, reach out to you, et cetera, if they got more questions? Uh, um, I'm on I'm on Twitter. My handle is, I think it's just Cameron Percy one or something maybe. And then I'm, I'm, I'm on Instagram. So I think the same thing, Cam Percy, one maybe there. And that's about all I use. Perfect. Be sure to give Cam a follow. And then if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please subscribe and leave us a rating. If you're listening on YouTube, please like and subscribe. This helps more people hear about us and learn about tournament golf. And if you're trying to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at the tournament code and on Twitter slash X tournament code. As always, we appreciate you taking the time to join us and look forward to diving in deeper to what it takes to play elite tournament golf. 